we have just come off <coughs> the season of Christmas, and we have celebrated the coming of Christ into the world. And if there is one thing that is clearly the case about his coming into the world at Christmas, it was that it was quiet, it was humble. We sing about a silent night. It was very clearly something that was without pomp, without circumstance, not a lot of pretense to it. Innocent little baby. Born in a manger. But did you know that in stark contrast to that, 30 years later, 30 years later, when it was time to announce the coming of Christ in his public ministry, that, that not quiet, not humble, there was actually a fanfare. You may not know this, but there was, there was a kingly fanfare uh, to announce Jesus' public ministry. And it happened in a person. The fanfare was actually a, a person. Uh, the entire point of one man's life was to serve as the fanfare appropriate for a king's entrance. Now, from everything we know, <clears throat> John the Baptist did not play the trumpet. But John the Baptist was Jesus' trumpet fanfare. He was a trumpet fanfare for Jesus. So when John the Baptist came preaching repentance in the wilderness, it was the equivalent of a formal uh, royal announcement. The king has come. The kingdom is at hand. Thank you, John. Thanks for the appearance. You can go back to your breakfast of locusts and wild honey. <clears throat> now, I'm not just making up this fanfare thing. It comes from Isaiah 40, the third verse. Um, if you want to look there, you, you might. We'll go ahead and put it on the screen for you. Isaiah 40, verse 3. It's a very important verse that is, is used by all four gospel writers to announce the coming of Christ the King. All four of them cite this because they recognize that John the Baptist was Jesus' kingly fanfare. It says this, a voice cries, this is what Jeff just, I'm sorry, John the Baptist, just said, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The language used here in Isaiah is, is language of smoothing out the path for the coming king. John was saying, fix the roads, because the king is coming. It, it was sort of like saying, roll out the red carpet. So here's the question for today. How do we get from quiet, humble, innocent, no pretense, baby Jesus manger, <clears throat> to the coming of a king? 
who would go work miracles, who would be a a strong, stout, look-in-the-face-of-evil kind of presence in the world for his public ministry of three years. There's a span of of, of 30-ish years from manger to his ministry. What happened in between? This is a tough question to answer, actually, because we know almost uh, nothing. We all know almost nothing of what happened during the 30 years between. Three of the four gospel writers go immediately from Jesus' birth to his public ministry with John the Baptist in between there. Matthew goes straight from birth to public ministry. Mark says nothing about Jesus' birth and starts his gospel with John the Baptist and public ministry. John says basically nothing about Jesus' birth other than that he existed from eternity past as the word. And then he starts by telling us about John the Baptist and Jesus' public ministry. Only Luke, where we are looking today, gives us information about Jesus' childhood. To answer this question of how in the world, how in the world does a tiny, innocent little baby fully human grow to become the kind of man that it takes to look in the face of evil and take on sin by dying on a cross. That's a huge change. That's a lot of growth. How does he get from here to here? There are some typical ways we kind of think about it. It may be a question we've not thought about much. I sort of wondered as I was writing this, did he sort of just wake up one day? <laughs> did he just sort of wake up one day when he was young and start to realize, so apparently I'm the son of God, I guess? I wondered if, you know, did Mary tell him? Did his, did his mother say, hey, Jesus, uh, and and like slowly kind of tell him along the way developmentally so he could understand it. Um, There's something special about you. Did she tell him about the angel Gabriel appearing? Did she tell him about Simeon and Anna and the shepherds and the Magi? I think that when we think about this question of how he got from here to here, I think that by default, by default, mostly because we haven't given it much thought, we have this impression that from the womb, Jesus somehow always knew everything from the moment he came out of the womb. As if he was instantly all-knowing and all-powerful right from the manger. Of course he was fully God. He was also fully man. We think of Jesus as if he, he saw the whole movie in advance. I mean, admit it to yourself. Most of us think that. If you think about it, actually it's a little ridiculous the way we think about Jesus coming out of the manger. Take the song Away in a Manger, for example. Away in a Manger, don't get me wrong, lovely little song. But every time that we sing No Crying He Makes, I think, Really? No crying the baby Jesus made? I think he actually cried. I mean, I'm hoping he actually cried because I want, I want him to be fully human so that when he dies on the cross for me and justifies me, that it counts. 
And we sort of think of him as this sort of like, you know, eight pounds, six ounce, baby Jesus, wearing gold fleece diapers. Hashtag Ricky Bobby. <coughs> the infant Jesus is God in the flesh. Yes. But that doesn't mean that inside his body he was saying, man, I just can't wait for my motor skills to catch up with my knowledge so that I can teach these people. No, 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 no. He has to be fully human for it to count. So in terms of his self-awareness, and this is the amazing thing we're going to look at today. This is the amazing thing. In terms of his self-awareness as a human, Jesus was just a baby in a manger, just like every other baby in a manger. He hadn't seen the movie in advance. He had, here's the crazy part, he had to learn his calling just like we do. He had to learn his calling just like we do. He had to learn his identity the same way we do. He had to live by faith the same exact way that we do. The huge difference, of course, is that he did all of that perfectly. He did all that perfectly. But he did it perfectly by the power of the same exact Holy Spirit we have available to us. And so the Holy Spirit, in his process of maturation of growth, did something unbelievable from manger to ministry in a a way that would forever change the entire planet. So how did he get there? How did he grow? How did he go from a child in a manger to a king working miracles? It's a fascinating account here. Jump in at Luke 1 verse 80. We'll start there again with John the Baptist. Luke 1 verse 80. 80. Luke has crazy long chapters. It's the last verse in chapter 1. This is where Luke begins his description of how Christ grew as a child, eventually here, by speaking of how John the Baptist grew. All of the Gospels make a big point of showing this close link between Jesus and John the Baptist. So start at Luke 1.80. We see here in 1.80 a twofold description of John the Baptist. It says, And the child grew... And became strong in spirit. The child grew and became strong in spirit. Now turn to our passage for today. Luke 2 verse 40. This is where we pick up the description of Jesus' growth. And it starts off sounding almost exactly the same way. Verse 40. And the child grew and became strong. Almost the same exact description as John the Baptist. But it, but it adds this. Luke adds this. Filled with wisdom, that's the third characteristic, and fourth, and the favor of God was upon him. So we have this twofold description of John the Baptist, grew, he grew and he became strong, and Luke also adds two more. So twofold to fourfold here, uh, so we get double a description for Jesus here. So he says, the child became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God, let's pause for this uh, for just a second, the favor of God was upon him. We're going to add a little more color to what Luke is doing in this first verse here. Look at that part of the last verse 40 there, last part of verse 40, the favor of God. Any, any good Jew reading this would know um, the favor of God is upon people who God anoints for his work and his ministry and his power in the world. Now, One of the main places this happens is in the life of Samuel. And any good Jew reads reads this and they go, oh, that's how they described Samuel. If you look this up later, 1 Samuel 2.26, 1 
1 Samuel 2.26, jump to Luke 2.52. This is where it is almost exactly repeated like Samuel. Luke 2.52. And why I'm going there is because at the beginning of this passage in verse 40 and at the end of this passage in verse 52, we get this idea of the favor of God being on Jesus. So Luke 2.52, we're going to show this up here on screen for you. Luke 2.52 is almost exactly like 1 Samuel 2.26. It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with the Lord and man. In favor with God and man. So let's put all this together here for for a second here. Uh, let's, Let's put all this together. You can take that down. Thanks, guys. Number one, Jesus' description is twice John the Baptist. Number two, Luke begins and ends this section by pointing out that God's favor was on Jesus. Number three, he draws us to the description of Samuel in the way that he he verbalizes this here, which is to say that Luke is saying in effect, Samuel was, was great. John the Baptist was great. But Jesus, Jesus. Is twice what they were. You think you know the work of God? You think you know the work of God in the lives of people? Jesus is going to so eclipse them. Your definition of the work of God will be vastly different soon. God's work in Jesus from manger to ministry is going to blow your mind. And all that's in that one verse? Yes. All that is in that one verse. It's all in there if you spend time in it. So the question for us is how how did Jesus become the Son of God through which worked through which God worked salvation. He was born king. He was born son of God, absolutely. But, but for him to live perfectly and fully human, he had to be the man of God through which the Spirit worked salvation. So was Jesus ready for the cross coming out of the womb? He grew into that readiness. Perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. But he grew into that Readiness with the same exact Holy Spirit we have available to us for our personal growth. If you just, if you just let that simmer, that's mind-blowing stuff. We have the same exact Holy Spirit that allowed fully human baby Jesus to become King Jesus working miracles. All right, let's get into this story here. Really cool stuff. Verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Luke is telling us here that Jesus was brought up in a a faithful Jewish home. Nazareth is probably about 80 miles from Jerusalem, so it would have taken about three days to get there. Luke is careful to tell us that both his parents went there. The men were required to go, and sometimes the women and the children would also go. Sometimes they would not. But Luke makes sure that we know that both his parents went. So Jesus comes from a faithful Jewish home, verse 42, and when he was 12 years old, this is about the time that, uh, that, that really, really good Jewish boys would be going off to sort of Bible college and start to follow a rabbi. And so when he was about 12 years old, they went up, according to custom, they went up to Jerusalem. And you go up to Jerusalem 
everywhere you come from because Jerusalem is up. And it says, according to custom. So we don't know this, but perhaps Jesus has been going to the feast of the Passover his whole life. Maybe year after year he's seen this amazing spectacle where Jerusalem, which is about 25,000 normally, becomes uh, upwards of 100,000, some believe, during Passover. So when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Verse 43 starts to get interesting here. When the feast had ended, seven days long feast, when the feast had ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Uh Uh-oh. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, which sounds a little crazy, like how do you lose a kid on the way back home? I know it's possible, believe me. Some of you have done that. Some of you have been the kid who's been lost. I've been both. It was common for a caravan uh, to travel together, uh, for families to get together for protection on long trips. Uh, And and for the Passover, the largest feast on the Jewish calendar uh, that kicks off the whole year, there certainly would have been others, probably from their own hometown, probably from their own family, family, obviously, that were traveling together as a group. So verse 44, supposing him to be in that group, they went a a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they freaked out like any of us would. They returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Press pause. I can just imagine uh, the conversation on the way back between Mary and Joseph. <laughs> well done, Joseph. You've lost Jesus. You know, the son of God. What do you mean I lost Jesus? All kidding aside, uh, have you ever had that moment of, and and it's true, it's it's instant dread. (laughs) That moment of instant dread when you lose a child in a crowd uh, or you don't know where your kid is in the mall. I've had that a couple times. When I momentarily thought, we had lost one of our kids. I instantly thought the worst. I can just imagine that Mary and Joseph uh, were instantly panicked here. So they set off to find him. Pick it up at verse 46. <coughs> after three days, after three days, they found him in the temple. By the way, the three days, probably not a reference to the resurrection at all. Uh, when Luke refers to the resurrection, all six times that he does, he says, Uh, that it happened on the third day, very specifically. And in other places, he says, after two days, after three days. So he's probably just saying three days from the time that they left Jerusalem to the time that they got back to find him. So after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers of the law, the rabbis, listening to them and asking them questions. It was common for students of the scriptures to literally, to literally sit at the feet of the rabbis and to listen and to ask questions. Clearly, Jesus loved to learn. Clearly, Jesus loved to sit at the feet of the rabbis and learn the truth about his father. How did he get from manger to ministry? 
He sat at the feet of the Word of God. We'll come back to that. Believe you me. Let's keep moving. He obviously learned well. Verse 47. And all who heard him were amazed. They were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He spoke with great wisdom. They'd never seen anything like this. Verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were uh, astonished. Now, clearly they did not expect this and they were annoyed at Jesus. Can you imagine being annoyed at Jesus? You can hear the disapproval in Mary's voice. It says this, His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? (laughs) Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. We are beside ourselves worrying about you. And you're sitting here chatting away with rabbis? Verse 49, He said to them, This is is great. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Apparently they didn't know. How How could you not know where I would be? Apparently they didn't know. We'll revisit verse 49 here in a bit. Verse 50, they did not understand. They did not understand the saying he spoke to them. Verse 51 and 2, just to finish up here in the text. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. This is, this is a telling statement about Jesus' commitment to growth. Even Jesus had things to learn from being submissive to his earthly parents. Are we preaching yet? Even Jesus had things to learn from being submissive to earthly parents. This is an amazing statement about Jesus' commitment to growth. Luke inserts this next phrase here. He likes to insert this in a few different weird places. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. It's, it's a picture of Mary... Uh, Watching, I mean, can you imagine being the mother of the Son of God, watching Him grow, not understanding everything, but wanting to, and yet placing faith and trust in Him, having, uh, having this perfect relationship with God so that she would be following Him, following the Father. That's why she treasured up all these things. And as we already sort of mentioned, verse 52 there to finish up. Jesus increased in wisdom and in, stra- and in stature, and in favor with God and men. What a cool thing to be able to say about somebody, isn't it? <laughs> to, to say that increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I love, I love the picture of Jesus that Luke is painting here for us. And I think that there are a few things, three things we'll say here. There are a few things for us to take away from this passage. Number one. Jesus loved to learn about God from the Word of God. Jesus loved to learn about God from the Word of God. 
This was a, a fundamental, it was perhaps the most important part of his own growth process and his own preparation for public ministry. He was found sitting among the teachers of the law. Now let me be real frank with you about this for a second. We live, we live in a culture that overemphasizes work and ministry as a primarily practical and hands-on endeavor and that the life of the mind or deep personal relationship with God or spiritual truth, impractical. We live in a culture that too easily throws aside learning and time alone with God as impractical. Show me the practical results. Get out there and start doing something tangible. An overemphasis on this is misguided and short-sighted. Here's why. It is work to study the things of God. If you study this passively, you won't get there. If you study this occasionally, the power of God over sin in your life will not be what it could and should be. It is work to study the things of God. Friends, this is why this is important. You cannot do the work of God without the wisdom of God. You cannot do the work of God without the wisdom of God. Let me say it another way. As a sort of related aside that pertains to me and then I'll extend it to all of us. I'm going to say it in a way that hits at the crux of this issue for us at First Christian Church. Let me say it this way. When I am absorbed in the pages of notes and biblical studies and Bible commentaries and I am praying for wisdom and for guidance and for, for knowledge from God to say what needs to be said through His Word and I am writing and editing and fasting and praying, when I am deeply engaged in the Word of God as your pastor, I am shepherding the flock. And I promise you, a bunch of you don't even believe that. The impractical work of the Word is the most practical thing you can do with your time. A whole bunch of you don't actually believe that. The impractical work of the Word is the most important and ultimately the most practical work that I can do for your sake. You may measure my effectiveness as a church leader based on whether I have shepherded you as you expect 
or as you learned in an unbiblical church structure. But mark my words, I promise you, I measure my effectiveness as a church leader and as a believer based on whether I have been faithful to what God has called me to do. Do you notice the difference? Because it's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. For us at FCC, it's the difference between, I'm going to say this twice, it's the difference between the easy work of maintaining a ministry of the gospel for the found or the harder and more fruitful and more rewarding and more faithful work of fueling a ministry of the gospel for the lost. And those are worlds apart. Mark my words. For the sake of the church in America and for the sake of the word of God to work in your hearts, this is huge. If the word doesn't do the work, it doesn't work. The difference is between the easy work of maintaining a ministry of the gospel for the found and the harder but more faithful work of fueling a ministry of the gospel for the lost. And this is the fuel. The truth of the word of God is the fuel. Working in your heart from day to day. If we as a church, if we stop short at ministry to self, ministry to self, and I do not shepherd us through the word to see past ourselves to the point of loving God's heart for the lost, then I have been unfaithful to the call of God in my life. Listen, friends. If the Word doesn't do the work, none of this works. If the truth of the Word, working through God's people, isn't doing the work, this endeavor doesn't work. And I'm not just talking about my role as pastor. I'm talking about your Christian life. You're so sold and snowed over into things that will work for you that have infinitely less practical value than your time reading about the heart of God. If the Word doesn't do the work, your Christian life won't work. Let me say it this way from manger to ministry. If your very Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, prepared for ministry, most fundamentally, by engaging deeply in the Word of God, how are you to think that you are some exception? Jesus, He loved, He loved to learn about the things of His Father. He loved to learn about God through the Word of God. Numbers 2 and 3. Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission required growing into maturity. Jesus' mission required growing into maturity. Jesus' parents are kind of annoyed when they find him. And they say, son, why have you treated us so? I think that Jesus answers his question 
answers his parents' question by saying, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? First, let me say, he's making a statement about whose son he really is. I mean, he's making a statement about his identity as God's son. I mean, he gets it. He may not know everything that it entails. He may not even know about the cross yet, but he gets it even at this point. So when he answers their question, he means it like, how could you not know? This is my work to be in my father's house. My father, he's, this is what he's saying, my father has called me to something important and I will be ready. Jesus' mission was so important. It required growing into maturity. So here's the question. Put simply, does your mission require growing into maturity? Or are your sights set so low and so narrowly on personal security earthly goals of temporary worth and value that your mission doesn't require you to grow at all. Maybe, maybe you feel so little urgency to sit at the feet of the Word of God because the mission you're on isn't calling you to anything of eternal consequence. What we're doing here is the most important work there is. How in the world can you can you not have to read this every day? I, I don't understand how people think I don't need to be in corporate worship on a regular basis. I don't need to be sustained by the fellowship of the body. It's because your mission is lame. Right now you think I'm being mean. Someday, someday, you will think it is love. It is love for somebody to sit here and go, If your mission doesn't require you to grow, your mission is a self-centered, pathetic joke. Number three, Joseph and Mary's mission of preparing Christ. I mean, think about that. Joseph and Mary are given the task of Preparing the word of God for his, I mean, preparing the the son of God for his mission. Joseph and Mary's mission of preparing Christ for his mission is our mission. Let me say it again. Joseph and Mary's mission of preparing Christ for his mission is our mission. In three ways, for ourselves, for our children, and for our church. 
When Jesus says the statement of his mission, I must be in my father's house. Some of your versions say I must be about my father's business. Um, It's probably house given the context, but anyway. Jesus' statement of his mission when he says, I must be in my father's house, is also a statement about Joseph and Mary's mission. Jesus says, did you not know? Apparently they were supposed to know. They were supposed to know what they were doing with Jesus. And if they didn't know before, now they do. They were tasked, and this is, this is the thing they were tasked to do, with helping prepare Jesus Christ for his mission to go on the cross. No big deal. <laughs> but that's the mission. That's the mission for you. To be prepared to go to a cross and die. That's the mission of anybody who follows Christ. Listen, their mission was Christ's mission. Same with us today. For ourselves, for our children, for this church, we have got to, we have got to raise this baby. In three ways, this is our mission. Number one, when it comes to raising ourselves, we must realize that we are not our own. We were bought with a price. We must die to self daily. Let me suggest just one way for you to do that. Learn to preach the gospel to yourself every day. Learn to preach the gospel to yourself every day. It will recenter your priorities before you get out of bed. Before you get out of bed, Lord, I love, I love that you sent your son Jesus to live a perfect, sinless life, fully human, fully God, and that he went to the cross and paid for my sins so that he would assuage your wrath, your justifiable wrath against my sin because I could do nothing else before you get out of bed. Preach yourself the gospel. If you don't know what the gospel is, then get into the word for goodness sakes. Learn to preach the gospel to yourself. That's part of how it's part of how we raise ourselves for Christ's mission. When it comes to raising our children, straight up, we must realize that they are not ours. They are not ours to be raised, to be respectable citizens, or to have a good job. That is not job one, two, three, four, five. Job one is to have a culture in your marriage and in your family where you are raising disciples on mission. The respectable citizenship, the job security, blah, blah, blah. All of that will probably come anyway. But they are not the mission. The mission is to grow this baby into a disciple. So stop supplanting God's mission for his child into your mission for your child. It's disgusting. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Stop supplanting God's mission for his child into your mission for your child. Finally, when it comes to raising a church, 
We have to realize that Christ is the head. We take our cues for our work from Him and not from man. We do not measure our effectiveness based on whether what whether we do what other churches do or what others expect us to do. We are only effective. We are only effective as a body of believers if we are making disciple makers. That is that is the measure. The measure. <clears throat> All told here, I think that what we learned from this passage of Scripture <laughs> that is the takeaway for us personally is that we are called to sit at the feet of the Word of God so that we are always ready for the mission of God. Sit at the feet of the Word of God so that we are always ready for the mission of God. Are you sitting at the feet of this book? Of God's heart through the power of the Holy Spirit written on a page so that we that we can know God's heart through it? Are you sitting at the feet of the Word of God? Or are you sitting at the feet of countless frivolous idols and pursuits of temporary gain that are a waste of your resources, a waste of your time? Let me close with this. If we were a people who would block out all the pathetic, silly expectations other than God's expectations, if we were a people who focused on the wisdom of God fueling our work for God, He would do absolute miracles among us. If we were about the wisdom of God fueling our work for God, He would do absolute miracles among us. So let's commit together to do as Jesus did. To grow up, to grow up from manger to ministry into men and women who are prepared to do whatever God has called us to do. Let's pray, friends.